This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontier, show number 35, recorded on February 11th, 2017. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and technologies that are shaping the future, all from an academic perspective. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in a very blustery Bellevue, Nebraska. And of course, we post the show with world-class show notes, mostly because Christian writes those world-class show notes, out at TheAverageGuy.tv. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can send us an email. Send that to me, Jim, at TheAverageGuy.tv. Track us down on Twitter. It's just at jcollison. TheAverageGuy.tv is powered by Maple Grove Partners. Web hosting, get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting. That's both web and media hosting, by the way, if you're a podcaster. That's important to know uh, from people you know and you trust. For more information and plans that start as less as little as $10 per month, get that at Maple Grove Partners, just maplegrovepartners, all one word, dot com. All right, we're going to dive into, a. I think, it's going to be a really awesome Cyber Frontiers. We'll uh, introduce Christian. I'll let him introduce our guest, but Christian coming to us from the confines, the University of Maryland College Park. Christian, how are you? I'm doing great, only for so much longer until it's uh, now as an outsider looking in, in a way. So it's oh. uh, closing down. Feel? Does that feel kind of weird knowing that you're just a couple months away from... Weird, old, young, all these you know confusing emotions. Um, but it's been a great run. I've enjoyed a lot of our time here. Um, kind of incredible to think that Prince Frederick itself has been a... Uh, ground zero for almost three years now. So that's that's pretty remarkable. Um, I'm going out next week to the RSA conference. So I'll be covering a lot of cybersecurity and uh, technology for folks to follow from there. And we'll also be doing a uh, poster presentation. So that's not part of the um, main speaking series that are, will be going on throughout the week, uh, but you'll be able to catch me there at um, RSA and hopefully we'll get some of that content back to our listeners as well. Um, I'm really pleased and excited this week to uh, be able to have Dr. Uh, Josiah Dykstra with us on the podcast. Uh, he is the author of Essential Cybersecurity Science, which is a book published by um, O'Reilly Media, um, and that came out in December of 2015. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Christian. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to dive right in. Um, I I'm really curious, just what, what was the impetus for you getting yourself to say, I want to publish a book in cybersecurity. Tell us a little bit about your your background academically and, and really what drove you to write a book trying to tie cybersecurity to being a field of science. Sure. Let me give you a little bit of my background and tell you sort of how I got here. This is my first book and it was a lot of work and a lot of fun. Um, I have been a practitioner for about 13 years doing everything from intrusion detection to forensics to malware analysis. I went to college and studied computer science. In my master's where I sort of got in, started into security. Um, when I was in undergrad, we didn't get to take any specific security courses because that wasn't really a, a major topic. It, it was great to sort of start doing that in, in my master's program and then I went right to work. And I worked for about seven years and then decided you know what, my company is offering me a free PhD, I'm gonna take them up on that. So I went back to school, I studied digital forensics for cloud computing, which in 2010, 2013 was a pretty new subject, and uh, had a lot of fun doing that. But it was a lot of work, and I had to write a dissertation that was a few hundred pages long, and 
at that point, I thought I was sort of done. I was going to go back and be a applied researcher. Um, I'm interested in working on problems that have very particular applications in mind. And so using my new minted PhD, that's what I wanted to do. A couple of years later, I thought, you know what? Lots of the things that I've thought about as a PhD and now as a researcher would really be applicable to other people who didn't go back to school, who have been doing this job for a few years and could benefit from some of these sort of fundamental uh, principles of science. And so I spent about a year researching and writing the book for O'Reilly, um, and it came out in December 2015. And now I go about talking to as many people as I can about how that is, that is sort of useful. And, and what are some of the core tenets and issues that you made a focus of this book and, and wanting to share with the audience of programmers and developers and individuals who really, some are consuming the cybersecurity science, some of them are practicing it, and some of them are in a way um, kind of benevolently passing by. Yeah, so the, the crux of the whole thing is, look, there's this very procedural method called the scientific method, and this is how it applies to various domains of, of security. And I spent some time trying to convince people of that because it's not always obvious another step or doing some extra work is of any benefit to me, the, the cybersecurity practitioner. Um, so I do spend some time walking through like, why is it respected and why it is contributing knowledge a valuable thing and how can I make more money by doing this extra bit of work? And then I walk through the, 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 the steps of doing the process and the principles of science um, in at least a cursory sort of level. I don't have enough pages or time in this kind of overview of a book to give them all the depth of every statistical method, but at least to introduce them. And then I spend 10 or 12 chapters going through different kinds of security and talking about, here's how you would apply it to software development. Here's how you would apply it to cryptography, forensics, visualization, um, helping really illustrate and sort of walk through examples of what does this mean in all of those different fields. So part of what you're saying in all this, though, is that the scientific method actually has a place in being able to be a practitioner. Is that because the scientific method helps folks start to sort out between kind of what are the marketing myths and what are the um, industry folklore and legend versus what actual reality is taking place? And what is it about the scientific method that allows people to know that they're making the right decisions and how they're being practitioners in the cybersecurity space? Great question. I th and I think I can best answer them with examples. I think that's the easiest way to sort sure. of understand. Oak wisdom is a phrase you used, and that's one that I use a lot because lots of security advice is not based on fact or research. It's just sort of passed down to us. So password length is one example. Um, at your company and mine, I'm sure we're required to have passwords that are characters long with all these fancy rules. But in reality, there's very little research that says at all. And so it would be very easy to do even introductory experiments to figure out what actually matters. And that's kind of what I'm advocating for. So another example, 
if you work for, say, Google, and you're interested in safe web browsing in Chrome, those software engineers could just sit down and say, you know what, we think this algorithm is the best way to help protect people. They're right. I would guess sometimes they will be correct, and they'll put a feature they can use and they like to use and actually protects them. In my opinion, sitting those engineers down with some researchers who can say, you know what, let's do some tests, let's do some experiments and figure out which features are usable, which features people uh, actually turn on, and which ones actually protect them. And big companies actually do this frequently. Um, if you look at social media or news websites, they're always testing things with people, and they will put stories in a different order. They will use different wording to sort of compare which ones do people click on more. And they're doing the, what they call A-B testing, which is a scientific test to figure out which one is more productive. If software engineer did this kind of thing, we'd end up with stuff that was more secure. Um, honestly, we'd probably sell more products because people like those features. Does that, does that help? Uh, no, that, that makes sense. Um, but is what you're saying though, that where do we distinguish between where the science matters for the practitioner and the science matters for the end user? Because a lot of folks who um, are subject to how well cybersecurity does or doesn't work for them um, kind of exist as these third party entities within their own ecosystem that they don't have a lot of control over. And so they're reliant upon cybersecurity practitioners and other people in the IT space to so on, you know, in some ways get it right on the first time and be able to guide average user bases into making good decisions or making right choices. Um, is there an element to being a practitioner where you have to advocate for what the science is and advocate for messaging that allows users to try and do the right thing on the first time? Or is it more about having the right science in place to build the types of technologies that are what we would call um, foolproof and not allow users to um, find themselves in a situation where they end up misusing the technology and therefore decreasing their overall security? I think it depends. And science isn't an all or nothing thing, right? It's sort of a dial. It's not you have it or don't have it. I think it depends. Sometimes, um, let's think of an example. There's our practitioners of medicine, right? They don't do the research. There's PhDs generally who do medical research drug companies, MD is the practitioner of medicine, and you benefit both from that MD saying uh, the toothpaste example, right? Nine out of 10 dentists recommend this toothpaste because there's been independent scientifically validated uh, tests um, that say that it's effective. The people designing medications care about that. The practitioner, the doctor probably cares about that and still has to convince you, the consumer or the patient, because you could choose not to do it. If you walk into Best Buy and you're comparing antivirus products, there's lots of ways to choose which one you are going to purchase. Maybe you buy the one that's the cheapest and you don't even care about anything else because 
your professor said you needed it or your your grandmother just needs something on her computer to protect her and that's the only thing that matters is the cost maybe you choose based on the color of the box um so people do that right maybe you choose based on the features and even more maybe you choose uh about rigorous testing of those products that's the kind of person i am if i'm comparing boxes of antivirus products i look and see what are the false positives right how right. many times does this thing detect stuff that isn't real sure um that's the kind of rigor that i think is important for me personally it's not important for everybody though so is what you're saying though that um you know you mentioned earlier about uh, ninety percent of viruses are caught with this type of product, or X percentage of um, malware can be classified using this. Is statistics easily manipulated in the cyber field? And if so, um, are visualizations or other ways of presenting data something that can counteract those stigmatisms, or do they exacerbate the problem? Very good questions. Um, the appendix of my book is actually my favorite and it talks about marketing hype and misrepresenting science and ways that that consumers are manipulated by science or scientific looking results um and i have a couple of pictures in there that that sort of illustrate this one is from an antivirus company called adaware which is a free antivirus that you can download and if you go to their website and you look at how they compare their product and they're trying to get you to download and install it they show, well, they use the phrase, Adaware significantly outperforms our free peers. Well, that phrase alone raises a lot of questions for me, and I want people to, to ask that kind of company, what does significantly mean? And who are your free peers? Because the next thing they show in this advertisement is them compared to two other antivirus, ABG and Avast. Well, I know very well that there are lots more free antivirus out there, but they've only chosen to show me the ones maybe that they win the best against. Um, they also talk about how many files that they, that they tested and they say out of 393 samples, we perform 91%. Well, 393 actually is a very small number considering all the files on the internet. And I don't know, I have any idea how did they pick 393? It's very possible they just cherry picked those to make their product look good. So from a marketing perspective, their product looks great, right? The marketing people have done what they're supposed to do, but we should be very sort of have healthy skepticism to question all of these things. And you're gonna go to RSA next week and talk to a thousand vendors who are all trying to sell you things and they're gonna try and use numbers to make you believe their results and to make you want to learn more about that product or to buy that product when reality you need to ask really hard questions about how did they conduct this process, right? How did they choose the samples? How many people did they test this against? All of those things matter a whole lot. Sure. Another and, one that I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, one thing I want to add in there too is um, we have this one side that is the marketing and the front end statistics and the front end view on cyber, but looking from that the back end, so I, I guess seeing the reverse psychology of how statistics can impact the scientists building these technologies, is there a danger that the 
statistics that we see are informing our choices on how to build and design security products in a way that makes them less effective than they could otherwise be? You know, I don't have any hard evidence about that, but I think that's very possible. Human beings are, even scientists, right, are not immune to that kind of persuasion, and they might be persuaded to, to go down a road that isn't very fruitful. Um, I definitely talk about human biases and those kinds of things. Um, human bias affects not only consumers, but also engineers and software designers and scientists themselves. And there's actually no way to get rid of bias. You cannot just turn it off. The best you can do is sort of recognize that you're being persuaded by bias is usually defined as something that is illogical or irrational. And we can recognize that we're doing it or we can try to recognize that we're doing it, but there's no way to, to get rid of it. Got it. Very clear. And, and so moving into the space of what a forensic scientist would do or what a malware analyst would do or some of these roles that are common to applied cybersecurity, where do statistics fall short in realizing things that are going on? And where can actual graphics or actual summary information paint a different picture about what is going on from an individual analyst sitting there and looking at raw data field by raw data field when there are maybe millions of fields to go through and a lot of data happening in real time? What are some of the common techniques that paint different pictures using visualizations in particular um, that allow people who are practicing applied cybersecurity to be more effective at their jobs? Sure. Let me talk about visualizations first and then shortcomings of things like statistics. So visualizations is sort of a sore point to me and yet a, a topic that I'm very interested in. Um, lots of security vendors can sell things because they have pretty dashboards, they have pie charts and bar graphs, and uh, consumers often ask vendors for those kinds of things. Humans are very naturally weak at analyzing raw data, right? Text, textual data, uh, big tables of numbers, and so they ask for, show me a picture. And I understand that. I understand actually that people are very good. The human brain is very good at understanding visualizations. The trouble is, most engineers are not usability people or human computer interaction people. And so they give, they give consumers the wrong kind of visualizations. Pie charts are a notorious example for this. Security vendor to show me a pie chart for this. Um, my brain is very bad at analyzing the distribution of a pie chart. Um, I have a picture from a Cisco uh, year-end report in the, in, the, in the book, and it divvies up the pie chart for classes of vulnerabilities. But the pie chart is like impossible for me to say how big is one slice or how does one slice compare to another. If they had done that in a bar chart or in a bar graph, then it would be easy for me to understand. But they've made a picture just for the sake of making a picture, and it actually is more confusing than helpful. So I think there's very careful choices to make in visualization. Sure. On the statistics part, statistics, I think my answer would be that statistics is just fine. It's the data that feeds them that can be the problem. 
Um, there's been lots of concern recently with like algorithms, right? Police prediction algorithms that tell police this is where we think the crime is going to be. And people say, oh, your algorithm is biased because it only tells you where the crime has been in the past. Um, the point there, though, is that the algorithm actually is fine, but we're feeding it data that biases the output. Um, I got a great book for Christmas called Weapons of Math Destruction. And this whole book is based on a, math, a mathematician's sort of understanding of how big data goes wrong. And she talks not only about alg algorithmic bias, but also data bias. And so if we're trying to make decisions about how to protect our networks based on um, traffic that you've only seen for one day, right? That's not enough data to sort of generally protect your network because that's not enough data, but that's all, that could be one problem, right? If you uh, are tempted to buy a product that protects your network from denial of service, but really denial of service is a very rare event. That one actually is not a very rare event, but making choices based on rare events lead you down the wrong path. And I think that's what you were, you were asking was, are we making incorrect choices based on the output of some of these things? And so rare events is one reason that we might make an incorrect conclusion based on the data. Sure. No, absolutely. And, and one space in cybersecurity that I think really has a lot of statistics lately and has a lot of data around it has been the Internet of Things, especially as we've seen recent attacks with um, Dyn DNS and other big providers where things like DVRs are now attacking boxes, attacking machines. And it seems like a classic kind of cybersecurity um, area where data is kind of king in describing the impact that people are missing. Uh, but the data is somewhat unclear about how to prevent these types of attacks in the future. Um, we see that Internet of Things not only has made devices so connected, but has potentially increased the attack surface of what's available to be attacked in levels that are really hard to actually quantify. And so I see a lot of numbers out there that say, X number of devices are now enabled by the Internet of Things, or your refrigerator now has an internet connection and can sing music to you in your sleep. And it really distorts, I think, what the, A, what the original vision and intent of Internet and Things was. And we've talked on this show before what the underlying technologies that comprise Internet of Things which, you know, primarily IPv6, getting rid of things like NAT, having devices being able to talk directly to each other, but now also having this address space that is so um, incredibly larger order of magnitudes than what was available in our current networking scheme. And how does the data and the the challenge of being someone who's supposed to champion cybersecurity science and not cybersecurity myth apply in a scenario like kind of dispelling the myth from the fact in Internet of Things? Yeah, so inter the Internet of Things, I think I would describe it as a very exciting field for experimentation in part because it's new. Well, as an ecosystem, it's new, right? All of the pieces are sort of old. But the other exciting thing to me is the scale. Um, the, 
the the trouble with doing experimentation sort of on a global scale is that it's hard to do other than in the real world. Um, scientists talk about something called ecologic validity. And ecologic validity uh, is about how well your experiment replicates the real world if you're only doing it, say, as a simulation or as a model. Um, think about how scientists study gorillas, right? You can study gorillas in the forest. You can study gorillas in the zoo. You can study gorillas in a cage. Um, all of these have different ecologic validity. And the same is true on the internet, right? If I study malware on my laptop, that's different than how it may, might behave on the internet. And the internet of things sort of makes this an even bigger problem because it's hard for me to replicate what does it mean for a billion devices to interact? And if I make a security change, what's the impact global scale? Personally done is to look at botnets. And if you want to take down a botnet, um, a botnet sort of looks like a graph, right? Especially distributed botnets. If you want to figure out, well, which, which part of the graph would you have to take down? If I could only take down 1% of the botnet, which one would have the biggest impact on security? Um, that is a hard thing to do in a, in a simulated setting. We got relatively close, but not certainly not on a global scale. But Internet of Things is kind of like that, because it's hard to, to, to try things out and know how it, what's going to happen on a global scale. And, and so when we, hmm. So let's let's put this in the context of a specific space. So how are individual enterprise organizations or individual users who are trying to adopt technology like the Internet of Things, how is the messaging or how is the technology enabling or prohibiting them from being able to maintain a security posture um, emit something that we can't really measure or know how global the technology is and what if we if we can't really give assurances about what the fundamental truths of the technology are at a global scale do those truths change at the local levels as organizations and individuals adopt them for their own uses my intuition is that the answer is yes um, somebody who says, well, I'm going to buy an Amazon Echo and put it in my house, they probably care the most about themselves, right? They, they start with this sort of local setting. How do I make sure it's not spying on me, that it's not listening all the time? Um, they don't necessarily have to think about the sort of global issue. Um, that said, the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas announced not that long ago that they're going to put an Echo in every hotel room in their hotel, right? That's three or 5,000 of them. Right. The hotel has to think about that problem in a different kind of context, but still not necessarily on a global scale. What does it mean for Google to know all of the queries in all of the world? Um, different people, I think, are interested in that problem. But whether it's just my house or whether I own a hotel, um, I think vendors owe it to consumers to sort of understand the security implications of that device. And I often use this as an example, like if I put an echo in my house, I might say to myself, 
you know what, I know these devices talk to the internet, but I'm going to guess that my Echo only talks to Amazon.com. And if I was sort of a curious person who wanted to do an experiment, I could actually figure out um, how many different domains does that device talk to. And if I want to lock down my network to make sure it only talks to one thing and it doesn't send my data to advertisers, for example, um, I could find the answer to that question with some experiments. Sure, sure. And and so moving more into the space of there are these different types of devices within the Internet of Things and the security considerations that you might apply to, say, an Amazon Echo might be very different from the security considerations you apply to an IoT-enabled refrigerator. What are some of the big fields or areas within this space that you think are technologies that we're still figuring out what the policies or what the insights are into how to best leverage the technology. For example, in the Internet of Things space in cars, there's this great benefit of being able to drive and have a car that maybe you can start remotely or can control the environment of the car or can have internet or can have kids in the back seat watching movies. Um, but how do we measure the ability for IoT to succeed from both a technology and security standpoint as the function and the utility of the device changes so rapidly within the field? I don't, I, I think all the ones I would offer are probably the usual suspects and self-driving cars is certainly one, medical devices would be another. Um, that being said, I expected us to have had some of these conversations already, and they haven't that I expected, say, five years ago. And cell phones are even one example. So there was this promise that, like, you, you would have your phone in your pocket and you'd walk by a McDonald's, and the McDonald's would know something about you and offer you a coupon. Well, we honestly, that isn't a big thing, right? We have that on very small, limited scales but it isn't sort of what we anticipated five years ago. So it, not, not to say that it's not important, but I think those conversations might be become different than we expect. And yes, I want the public to have very deliberate conversations about that trade-off of utility versus privacy, um, which is really what lots of those boil down to, right? What's the benefit versus the possible risk of it being connected. Um, I suspect that will probably be some combination of vendors sort of working amongst themselves to improve security. It could be government policy and regulation, um, that kind of thing. It could be consumer demand, although we haven't seen a lot yet of consumer demand for that for the security of those kinds of devices. But it's likely to be a mix. So based on your response then, do you see things like your cell phone as being an internet of things or just another device? The, yeah, this is the semantic argument about what those words mean, right? Um, I would probably put phones in that category and I would not put computers in, like my laptop I would not call an internet of things device. Usually when I use that phrase, I mean things that existed before internet. They have some other purpose, right? My stereo, my car, even a phone uh, in the traditional sense, right? Had a different purpose. 
pivot to the internet to expand its capabilities. And so, yeah, if you say that a phone's primary purpose is for talking, uh, then it, it is an Internet of Things device. If you're of an age where a phone really is just a small computer, uh, then you would have an argument against me for that. Sure, sure, that makes sense. And, and do you think that the speed at which we are talking about certain aspects and classes of these devices is missing some of the larger thematic um, aspects of the conversation? And, and so to explain that a little bit further, you mentioned earlier that you know we were expecting to be able to walk in front of things like McDonald's and have our phone give us a coupon specifically. And so maybe there's one type of conversation around the privacy implications of doing that um, in an internet of things, I guess, viewpoint. But have we had the types of conversations that we've needed to have around the spaces of what's the privacy of your cell phone and how is app security or the number of apps you have on your phone changing your security posture as you continue to use your device how is the age of the device or the frequency of usage applying into being able to build unique fingerprints and patterns that establish your user behavior it, to me it seems like a lot of these core concepts we've seen in a lot of different generations of technology and that maybe the conversation that is missing from you know the buzzword aspect of internet of things really has been happening on different scales and levels with older generations of technology that we either consider to be dated or to be today's current state of technology would you agree with that yeah in general i would agree with that um we've had i mean Small groups of people care very much about this topic. I don't see it as sort of a, if you walk down the street, everybody cares about the topic. Maybe, well, I can't even guess, but a small percentage. And we've had the conversation in things like tailored advertising um, on the, on the with web browsing, for example, right? Um, should advertisers be able to track you as you go along? Amazon.com, right, does feed me customized recommendations based on what I do. Netflix does the same thing. Um, that's not exactly the same as McDonald's sort of recognizing that I'm standing in front of their restaurant. But in the purely online sense, um, we've had a few conversations about that. And there are people who say, you know what, I, I don't want any advertisers to know anything what I do on the internet. I'm willing to trade off and say that Netflix cannot make personalized recommendations because I don't want to, to reveal that kind of thing to them. But it's getting harder to make that choice. I don't know that you can even use Netflix and tell them not to remember everything about you. Um, certainly those conversations are happening in, the, in, in Europe, for example, where people have the right to be forgotten. Um, but it's really hard to use Gmail and say, I don't want Google to know anything about me. It's just part of that ecosystem. And if you want to use that email, if you want to use Netflix, if you want to use Amazon, that's part of the deal. And so, uh, you know, Jim, you use a lot of these types of technologies in your environment, in your ecosystem. Um, as someone who is more on the using side for some of these gadgets and not as concerned with necessarily the security aspect from an organizational aspect so much as I'm an individual user and I want to protect my data, um, 
how much are you trading off the privacy aspects with the usability aspects and what's your general preference? Yeah, you know, as you guys have been talking about this, I've been thinking, you know, um, I think the average consumer is willing to take on a lot of those, the advertising or the snooping or the the marketing, right? The guerrilla marketing, so to speak, of knowing where we're at while we're doing those kinds of things, right? We give up that kind of security for it. And I know there's a group of individuals for, who find that very, very important that we maintain that level of privacy. However, I think most consumers are willing to give up a portion of that. You think of like an application like Waze or some of those where you're giving up some of that information for the better good of everybody else using it. I think uh, Christian and Josiah, some of our our listeners are are actually concerned or more concerned about the taking over of those devices. And so maybe I have that electronic door lock that is physically securing my front door, right? It's an, it's, it's now controlled through the internet of things. The vehicles, uh, we did a couple episodes ago on home gadget geeks. We did an episode about car, car tech and what's going on with that. And there's lots of technology embedded, uh, in our cars now that we're finding can be hacked and taken over. So when we think about the physical, you know, the physical damage or the physical access that can be gained through some of these, you and I in the pre-show, were talking a little bit about you know, we just keep repeating the sins of the past where we get the, 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 uh, the hardware gets out ahead of the, the conversations about security. One, I'll ask you, how do we stop that from happening? I mean, wh where is a world where we talk about that before some of those things roll out? And then two, how concerned do I need to be about the physical control, especially now that I'm locking up my house or locking up my car or I'm letting the car drive for me? So can you kind of address those two questions? Sure. Let me start with the second one. Um, it's come to lots of, like, people see news headlines and they see actual events of those kinds of devices being broken. And that brings to the forefront of their thinking, this could happen to me. Um, not everybody sort of goes the extra mile to say, well, what is the likelihood of that happening? Or even 50 years ago, when I bought a, a key and a lock for my house, how did I know that somebody else didn't already have that key? Right. How do I know the manufacturer didn't keep a copy? How do I know they don't sell the same key to everybody with my lock? We just weren't thinking about that. And for better or worse, now we're thinking about it. And I think that's that's a good result. Help people think about those kinds of things. Um, I think your first question was, how do we not repeat the sins of the past? I think it has to be incentivized. I don't see any evidence that security will just become on its own a critical factor for people. People are just gonna keep buying cars um, unless there's some incentive um, to buy one that's more secure. That's the only reason that people bought uh, cars that were good for the environment, right? A few people bought cars because they were good for the environment and no other reason, but lots of people bought them when they got a tax break. Um, that incentive uh, helps drive the market a little bit. Uh, if the companies are incentivized, if they get fined, for example, when their software breaks down, that would be one way to help get rid of those bugs. And those companies would have a reason to do security first in whatever new technology comes next. Yeah, no, you make a good point as well as high profile, uh, you know, high profile incidences where we think of like Firestone years ago and they had all those tire problems with Ford. 
And of course, massive lawsuits went in and a lot of changes, a lot of good changes took place. You hate to see that, you know, you hate to see that have to happen to get there with it. The negative side of the incentive it would be awesome if, and, and, you know, car makers like Volvo are on the front end of this saying we're making the world's safest cars. And hopefully that will incent, you know, more people will buy those because they are safer along those lines. Quasi asks in our chat room, what about HIPAA as it relates to medical IoT devices, right? Generally, we only think of HIPAA as it relates to medical centers or our inform, you know, HIPAA information being people letting that information out. Have you had any discussions or seen or know of when we think about HIPAA information being transferred on IoT devices or in medical devices that are connected and that data being leaked? Is that just a data breach or does that come under HIPAA? Any, any, um, any work in that or any thought in that area? So I'm not an, I'm no expert on HIPAA. Um, honestly, my understanding of HIPAA is about enabling data sharing. People often see it as a protection uh, restriction mechanism. Honestly, I think what I remember when it first came out is how can I share my data between my doctors? Um, but of course, how do I do that securely? Um, I don't know that HIPAA has any governance over devices. I could be wrong about that. Um, certainly they talk about how do you protect the doctor's office? How do you make sure the data is encrypted in transit and the data is encrypted at rest? Um, I don't know if HIPAA governs insulin pumps and uh, those kind of cochlear implants. I could be wrong. It Do does definitely cover at least the server pieces, right? So, so storing medical data on an electronic system would have to fall under HIPAA compliance as far as how you store and retrieve that medical data. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, at least especially like at the University of Maryland, for example, there are separate um, policies and procedures that uh, have to be followed to be HIPAA compliant from a technology perspective where data is um, stored in different systems from what would normally be used for this type of IT service and the ways in which they're allowed to be stored and retrained and what type of technical staff is actually allowed to view that data. Um, like, do you really want an IT systems administrator reading your health records? Well, that's probably a sticky subject as far as it pertains to HIPAA. Um, how do people um, really deal with that? But I, I, in the context of the actual device itself, as far as it pertains to um, pacemakers and other technology, I do believe they are getting closer to regulating that um, as far as how the data from your pacemaker, for example, might be sent back to your doctor. Um, and at which point your doctor is under the same HIPAA obligations to properly save or destroy that data when it no longer has a viable use. And so in a way, these devices moving around um, with the person doesn't necessarily change the HIPAA compliance that's required for doctors and health practitioners to properly store and maintain data that might be transmitted by those devices. And certainly that's the case with many of these things. Uh, but to what extent uh, devices are compliant with that or what classes of devices have to be compliant in certain ways is also unclear to me. Um, that's an area that I will definitely be sure we follow up with um, in post show notes um, when we release this show. I wanted to turn to one uh, final area that I think really touches on 
where we are moving in the cybersecurity field, because I think a lot of where the technology is moving can also be traced by where individuals are moving. And so it seems to me that we have a lot of competing viewpoints in um, a lot of academic and other spheres for how to approach teaching and learning cybersecurity as a tradecraft and as an injury professional. And how do we promote individuals to actually be involved in the field in a way that allows them to either be successful as maybe an applied cybersecurity individual or maybe as someone who's building the technology? And are certain things that we're doing in education institutions or in industry um, basically allowing us to have certain populations of folks who know how to do specific niche things within the cybersecurity skill set, but overall are we, I guess, tying a hand behind their back and understanding the bigger picture and the bigger theory so that when new problems and challenges in security comes along, they have the right tools to be able to analyze and to look at those problems. And I say that because going back to our discussion about your book, it seems a lot of the driving insights behind using the scientific method as a way to approach some of these problems would seem relevant in giving um, future industry experts the right tools that they need to be able to analyze problems that they may have not seen before or may have not been taught in academia. I think you have really good observations there. Um, and I think there's probably lots of answers or perspectives on that topic. Um, I can imagine a world where nobody needed my book where everybody who was a practitioner in this field had some base education or continuing education, um, that they understood the benefits of not only science, but of any kind of domain, uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence um, at sort of a basic level that they would know when it applied to their field and knew when they needed to sort of go learn more. Um, I heard recently that Google now is training almost every engineer in the whole company about big data analytics, even the people whose job that doesn't exactly do that kind of thing, but they want everybody to sort of understand the basic knowledge and know when to go learn more. Um, I, I don't think the security field needs everybody to go to college. I, don't, I certainly don't think we all need PhDs. Um, but at the same time, there are some sort of fundamental things, and I think the education system is getting better at this. We're tailoring in certain, some people right, go to college and they take very general computer science classes. Some go and take very specific um, reverse engineering and intrusion detection and those kinds of things. Um, I think those kinds of people will end up in different kinds of jobs. Um, the reason that I think we, that I had to write this book is because people weren't getting that kind of education, at least over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And this is to help kind of bring them up to speed. Um, I can't make everybody read it either. Um, totally get that. <laughs> I'd be good for book sales if I could, but I don't have that kind of power. Um, but I hope the right kinds of people are at least interested in learning those kinds of topics. I find that even in my own life, um, when I was in undergrad, there was no machine learning class. And I've had to sort of self-teach myself that, or new programming languages have come out, and I need to sort of keep up with that kind of thing. Sure, absolutely. If our field is to be successful, um, 
we need that sort of continuing education. Yeah, and by and large, I think an observation that a lot of people are seeing is that there are so many vacant positions that it's very hard to figure out what type of trained individual fits in those positions because there is such an overwhelming demand, but because it all falls under the umbrella of the word cybersecurity, it becomes very hard to tell what type of cybersecurity professional you actually need in that spot. And yes, you can list skills and you can list programming languages and you can put out a job requisition that kind of covers core skills and technologies. But at the end of the day, the actual amount of people who are available to fill that may be very different or their or their educational background and how they're getting there may be so vastly different from another person that they just hired with that same um, job code. Does that result in a... Uh, a disparity in people's ability to communicate with one another, or does it add a level of diversity to the field that is needed to solve some of these problems? Yeah, I don't know what the single right answer is to that. I'm fine with the, well, so on one hand, when I look at resumes, it is sometimes hard to compare. Even if one resume is very stellar with no work experience, right, a PhD compared to a bachelor's or a high school degree with lots of experience, it's, it's impossible to tell on that piece of paper which one will do better in the security field. I also think we need both. I think we need a diversity of experience. I think we need a diversity of skills. Um, I really wish I, I could hire people who had skills in psychology and computer science. I think that would help me do security better. Um, the cookie cutter approach, I don't think is the optimal solution. And by cookie cutter approach, we're talking about listing skills and basically specific base qualifications that would draw someone to apply to that position. Right. I, I don't want every single person to have a computer science degree with two years of experience with these five certifications. Um, I don't think we're ever going to get that identical. Plus, I don't think it's that useful. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, so we're bringing in for a landing, but I want to make sure that our online listeners have a chance to finish asking some of the questions that they brought up during today's show so that it's part of our official podcast. One question that was recently asked in chat going back to our earlier conversation was, quote, has there been any real success in identifying malicious network activity using data visualization, end quote. So this kind of question goes back to a lot of what we were talking about in the visualization space. Um, is there anything that you can speak to in being able to answer that question? Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, from my own experience, I have seen places where visualization helped identify intrusions more quickly than without it. Um, that isn't universally true, but I have seen the benefits of it. It's not like every time I see a picture, it's worse in terms of speed or efficiency or accuracy than if they didn't have it. And is there a difference in having those visualizations in a static context versus an operational context where you're trying to look at data in real time as it's coming in and make sense of it in maybe some type of time constraint? So I've never seen a scientific comparison of static versus dynamic um, that I can think of right now. 
although I'm even doing some work where I'm interested in like three dimensional dynamic visualizations with like augmented reality because my intuition is that it's better than a 2D monitor. Um, I actually think the 3D dynamic ones will be better, but I don't think I've seen any evidence of that so far. Got it. Great. Well, Jim, I'll turn it over to you if you have any uh, final questions or contributions that you want to add to the show. Um, but we have gotten through our um, core questions and uh, we awesome. We were able to cover most of the aspects of the essential cybersecurity science, which I think is something we really have not gotten to talk much about in any of our series. Um, so I'm very excited about that. No, indeed, and we thank you for coming on. Um, so your book, Essential Cybersecurity Science, one more time, tell us like the perfect, when you were writing this, uh, tell us like the, who are you hoping, what groups of people you were hoping to really influence and change in, in some of the work that you did in the book? You know, I was really trying to write for people who have done this job for a couple of years, three, five, six years, um, for whom it was a new sort of subject, it, was, it is not meant for PhDs. It is meant for people who do this job day in and day out, who I think can benefit from it. Um, the secondary sort of audience is probably people who are learning, who are still in school. Um, even if they don't have that practical experience yet, this will help prepare them for that. The audience is people who are practitioners. The, the, the folks in the trenches, the ones working the products, the ones writing the code, that group of people? You got it. All right. Perfect. Well, we've got a whole bunch. The good news is we have a whole bunch of people like that that listen. So we thank you for coming <laughs> on and for being a part of what we do today. Uh, hang tight. Don't go anywhere. Uh, we'll, we will uh, let folks know that if they, want to, if they want to get more involved in what we're doing, if they have questions additional afterwards, Christian always loves to follow up on those questions. He's really good at doing it. You can send me an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can also send that over to at Jay Collison on Twitter. And we'll get back to that. To get back to you as well. Remind everyone that uh, the Average TV, powered by Maple Grove Partners Web Hosting, gets secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people you know and you trust. It's Christian right there. Although you can't see him, we had to shut our video off for this podcast. You're probably listening to the audio and you don't care. But if you're interested in doing that, plan start as little as ten dollars. Uh, both media and web hosting for podcasters, Maple Grove Partners. Dot com if you enjoyed this podcast and you probably this is one you want to head out to the average guy.tv and look for cf035 that is going to be where the show notes are christian has always has really good show notes and so you want to head out there for all the links the way to get to the book the links for that all the information that we talked about will be in the show notes later if you enjoyed it we ask you to share it and that will say goodbye